What is my need? What am I lacking? Where am I in my growth? Is there something that I need to do that I haven't yet done? Am I doing a lot right, but not all? And so when we look at this man, it says in verse 18, a certain ruler asked him. Here it says a certain ruler. Matthew's account says he's young. All three, or there's three of the accounts that say that he's rich. Hence, we call him the rich young ruler. That's, that's why we say that. So he's a man from a worldly perspective that is respectable, successful, done a lot right. And he asks a great question. He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I think that's the greatest question one could ask. Going to heaven. How do I do it? And am I willing to do whatever that is? Do I want to go to heaven? Am I willing to seek the Lord for that answer, not just any person? But he calls him good master. Jesus challenges him with this question, verse 18. Or verse 19. Why callest thou me good? None is good save one, that is God. Now, from one aspect, there's really only one that is God, or that is good, which is God. Other passages teach us that we, are, we have all sinned. There is none righteous, no, not one. So from that aspect, none of us can say that we are truly good. However, we do see examples of people that are referred to as good. So I don't think the point here is saying that there's never a, a case where someone is referred to as a good person. For reference on that, in Matthew 12, Jesus said that a good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, uh, does some things. Romans 5, 7 talks about a good man that if someone were to die for them, Joseph of Arimathea was called a good man and a righteous man in Luke 23. Barnabas is called a good man. So there are people who are referred to as good in some sense. But in its purest sense, the way Jesus is referring to here, there's really only one that is good in that way. But I believe the point of this question is about where do you see Jesus? He's called him good teacher. But Jesus wants him to see that he is way more than just a teacher. He is a teacher, greatest teacher ever. But aren't there people today who even will acknowledge that Jesus was just a good man? However, if that's a belief, how could you really say that because a man doesn't claim to be God. 
Jesus is trying to get him to see that he is more than just a good teacher. If Jesus was not God, then he was not really good because he was deceiving people. You can't have it both ways. You can't, or, or you can't say, well, he was a good philosopher or he did some good things, he had some good teachings. No, he's way more than that. He is Lord. And so we need to see that, that Jesus is Lord. Now, when we say that he's Lord, what does that mean in practicality? Is it just something we acknowledge and say, yeah, I believe Jesus is Lord. I've heard that in Bible class. It says that in the Bible. Well, what it should mean is it, it should translate into some different action and belief that would move me to live a certain way. If I truly believe he's Lord, I need to let him be Lord of my life. Even he would say, why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? And he also said, not everyone who says to me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. So if you truly believe that he is God and that he is Lord, then it needs to reflect. And so I believe that's what he's doing when he says there's none good but God. But verse 20 to answer his question, what, what can I do to inherit eternal life? He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother. And the man says, I've kept these from my youth up. So let's acknowledge that, that the man obviously cares about some words of God to the point that he's doing a lot of what he's supposed to do. Now, he may seem like he is doing all. But perhaps even in the good things that he's doing, maybe he's not following these commandments as well as he thinks or he's claiming. And I have to ask myself that same question. Just because I'm not breaking some commandments, have I lived the way God is designing me to live? Am I half-heartedly doing it or am I leaving something out? Am I doing or practicing the principle behind it? Maybe I'm not a criminal. Maybe I haven't done what others have done. But as, is God pleased with me? That's the ultimate question. You know, you can do certain things right. Like I, I, I think, just as an example in school, I'll use a secular example, I believe you could pass a test. I believe that you could get an A in that class that does not mean you have applied yourself. Is that not true? Can you not win a ball game, but does that mean that you played to the best of your ability? Similarly, I believe that you could do a lot right religiously, 
You can be religious and be very religious and still be lost. You can still be leaving a lot on the table. And you would know what that would be. But in this man's case, Jesus tells him what he's still lacking. And he doesn't hold back. And one of the other accounts says he loved him. I believe that love would tell you what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear. And that's what Jesus does. And Jesus says, Yet lackest thou one thing. Sell all that thou hast, distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now that seems a bit odd. Do we know anywhere in those commandments that this man had been taught that that is a requirement that everyone must do? I'm not aware of that. However, that's what this man needed to do in his circumstance. And so what that means for me is I have to ask myself, what's that one thing that I am unwilling to do? Have I done, <clears throat> have I done all these things right, but there's this one thing that I just can't bring, not that, anything but that? Is it possible? You remember Saul, the king, King Saul, did a lot right when he went and fought the Amalekites. God had told him to wipe them all out, everything. They did most of that, but then they brought back a few. And then he brought Agag, the king, back. They were not supposed to do that. And he claimed they were going to sacrifice them to God. So maybe there was some religious purpose behind it. You see, we can rationalize, we can try to justify ourselves, we can try to tell ourselves, I've done all these things right, but deep down, I've got to ask myself, am I really obeying God? Have I fully surrendered to Him? And if the Lord were speaking to me, would He say, Andy, you're lacking one thing. And what would that one thing be? And you've got to ask yourself that question. And then, are you willing to do whatever that is? Because if you're only obeying the Lord on these outward commands, but not on the principles, or you're only obeying the Lord when it's convenient for you, have you really obeyed Him fully at all? Because the Bible is full of religious people who are still lacking. How many kings does it say that he did that which was right, but not like David? Or we'll read about those who do part of what they're supposed to. But this one was hard for him. And we're told the reason why is verse 23, when he heard this, he was very sorrowful for he was very rich. You know, if you don't have a lot to give up, it might not be very hard to give up what little you have if you don't have much. 
Not sure. But having a lot to give up. But then being asked to give that up may be a difficulty. And I believe this is why the the proverb writer said, give me neither poverty nor riches. And Jesus goes on to say, when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now some people want to get into this debate about what exactly that meant. That was it an idiom, the a needle's eye. Camel goes through the needle's eye. Some want to say that was some road named that. Some people want to say it was a rope or uh, that there was an idiom for that expression. Regardless of whatever you want to say, was it a physical needle? That, you know, uh, the eye of a needle. No matter how you want to dice that up, it's seemingly impossible. That's the point. The point of this whole thing is it is hard. So don't, don't miss that in that saying. It seems impossible. And the reason why is it could be a temptation to trust in those riches. It could be a temptation to hang on to those riches. That could be your feeling of safety instead of God. It could be that your focus is now on that instead of God. It could be that you're being greedy. It could be that you're unwilling to share. It could be that it becomes your God instead of God himself. And so there are some dangers in earthly wealth. Now, we find wealthy people who were not right before God. We see Solomon who had wealth. Now it was his wives that turned his heart away. You can be rich and still go to hell. You got the rich man who's in torment. We, we talked about that in chapter 16. Having wealth on this earth but being lost in hell for eternity is not worth it. However, there are some wealthy people in the Bible who were still godly. Abraham was a wealthy man. Job is an example of a man who's been on both sides of that. Very wealthy, lost it all, and then gained back double what he had. You can be wealthy and go to heaven, but Jesus says it's hard. So recognize the danger. There's also some dangers in the desire to be rich. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and to many foolish and unhurtful and hurtful lusts. We, we've got to guard ourselves and our heart and protect our desire there that it's only for God. If God happens to bless us with earthly possessions, then we need to use it for His glory. And we don't need to trust in it. Recognize it's just a tool. It can be a good tool to do a lot of good with and give. We could be wise with our money 
and then God be pleased with us how we're doing that. Or we could chase that in a wrong way. Recognize the danger here. So when Jesus says, how hardly shall they? But then in verse 26, notice the response of other people. They that heard it said, who then can be saved? I think what Jesus is saying has some shock value that they're getting the impression, well, if this is the case, there probably aren't very many people that are going to be able to make it. It's kind of like the previous question that we looked at when one asked, are there few that be saved? And really the answer to that is yes. When you get down to brass tacks and when you see what Jesus actually teaches, there are very few people who are following what he said. It's not that it's impossible. It's not that you have to be perfect to go to heaven. That's not the point. But you've got to be willing to love him more than anything. You've got to be willing to be committed. And if, you, if it comes down to a choice between God or some other thing or some other person, you've got to be willing to choose God. And he points out the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And so that prompts Peter now to say, we've done that. We've left it all. And then in verse 29, he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come, life everlasting. You think about what the apostles must have given up to be able to follow Jesus. You know, it says whenever Jesus came to, to call the Galilean fishermen to them, it says they left their nets. They left their livelihood. A couple of them left their father and that family business, and they followed him. We have other examples of people who said, I will follow you, but first let me go. And then they weren't willing to drop that. They, 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 they claimed they were willing, but Jesus challenged them. Where sometimes we think, oh yeah, I would. I'd do whatever it takes. And then once that thing is named, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. So make sure it's not just an empty claim. But Jesus points out, though, those who are willing and those who have left at all, look at what they get. The most important on the list is the world, the life everlasting. But you do gain some things in this life, too. He actually says many, manifold more, many times over more. Some people might need to leave their family. And yet they gain a greater family. They gain a spiritual family. I don't know. Are you willing to leave all? Do we have within us that mind of willing to sacrifice, willing to give up whatever it takes? 
Or do I choose my family over the... Sometimes there are people who will claim they believe what the Lord teaches on certain things. Then whenever that situation hits in their household, they choose their children over, over God. Or they choose their spouse over God. Have you ever known someone to say, I know the Bible teaches that homosexuality is wrong. But then they have a child that practices that. And then they choose the child over God. You can still love your child. God still loves them. But to condone something that God condemns, that would be wrong. But sometimes people, in order to accept their child and their behavior, they will change their viewpoint on what Jesus taught. And they'll look for some way to try to say, well, that didn't mean that. Sometimes there are people who love a person in a relationship, but that relationship is not ordained by God. Some marriages are described as adultery in Scripture. And so then, who do you love? Why, tell me this, why, what would be a case where... When he says, there's no man that had left house or parents or brethren or wife. Would there not have to be some case where a person would have to leave their wife? For the kingdom of heaven's sake. What example would that be? Well, if you're married, but that marriage is not scriptural, well, then you've got to give up that marriage. And so, that's the case. But if you do, look what you get. You get, you get a, you got you got to decide. Do you want to be married to this person that God doesn't approve of? That relationship? This spouse that doesn't really belong to you, that was really bound to someone else? We can't get into all of the details of that, but Jesus plainly said, whatever God has joined together, don't let man separate. But then whoever marries her that is divorced commits adultery. So if you marry someone and that person did not divorce their spouse for fornication, then your marriage to them would then be adultery. And so the only way to make that right would be to leave your spouse. That's, that's hard. That might be your one thing. Or a person's one thing. But then we've got to choose. And then in that case, I guess we could choose whether to be like the rich young ruler and go away sorrowful, not willing to give up that. Or we could make that choice as Peter and the apostles did. They were willing to leave off, and they did. Verse 31, He took unto him the twelve and said, And then, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated, 
and spit it on, and they shall scourge him and put him to death, and the third day shall rise again. And they understood none of these things, and this saying was hid from them, neither knew they the things which were spoken. Now, you might wonder, like, why is this mentioned, sandwiched in between the rich young ruler and what's going to come next when he heals a blind man? Well, he's talking about humbling oneself, and he's talking about giving up everything, but Jesus is telling you, he has done that. He has given all, as we just sang. I gave, I left, and I've done it all for you. Jesus is not asking you to do something that he wasn't willing to do himself here. He's done more than what he's asking of us. Think about that. He has sacrificed more than you and I can imagine. So him asking us to be committed to him and give up anything that gets in the way of our relationship with him is not too much to ask. It's interesting that they didn't really comprehend that he was going to die. It says it was hid from them. But I have to wonder, though, the words here are not that hard to understand. I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be spitted on, I'm going to be killed. What's there to misunderstand about those words? That's not hard verbiage. It's not hard grammar to translate. What's, what's, what's hard to understand? He's going to die. He's been saying that. But are there some concepts in Scripture that I'm refusing to understand because of, the, of what it means to me and what, that it's hard for me to grasp this because of what it now means for me and what I need to do? Have you ever read a passage, you're reading it, I know it says that, but is that really what that means? Does that mean I really have to do that? Are there some commands that the Lord said where we want to say, no, surely He didn't mean that. But I think they got it later. Either way. Verse 35, then He comes to another man. It came to pass that as He was come nigh to Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the wayside begging. A bit different circumstances than the rich young ruler. You got the rich young ruler who's doing really well. But you got this man who's down and out. And he's begging. Verse 36, And hearing the multitude pass by, he asked what it meant. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth passes by. And he cried, saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. In Matthew's account, we're told that Jesus is a descendant of David. And those names that are given there are to prove that he's a descendant of David. He's a rightful heir to the throne. This man knew that he was a descendant of David. But he's asking Jesus to have mercy on him. 
That's a good question. That's a person who knows they're in need. A person who's truly needy sometimes can cry out. I believe this is why sometimes you see those who are in a, a similar circumstance more willing to do what they need to do than, say, the rich man who was comfortable. But it says in verse 40, Jesus stood and commanded him to be brought unto him. And he, when he was come near, he asked him, saying, What wilt thou that I shall do unto him? Now, let me back up just a second. Verse 39, They which went before rebuked him, that he should hold his peace. But he kept on crying. So it wasn't just one plea. This is a man who knows he needs and he has to have his help. And people are telling him to be quiet and he won't be quiet because he knows this is my only chance. So he keeps on trying. I think that's a good thing about this man, that he's persistent, that he continues regardless of what other people are saying. He's not worried about what they're thinking of him. He knows his own need. On the flip side of that, I have to ask myself, why are, why are there all these cases where people are getting annoyed at these people who are really in need of the Lord and they're seeking Him? Maybe perhaps they don't like the way they're doing it, the way they're saying it, there's something about them. He, they did that with the children. Uh, with the, the children were there and they were, they were trying to tell, them, tell the children to be quiet. He says, no, let the children come to me. And then here we have this case where here's a man who's blind and I don't know, was he yelling out in a way that they just thought was annoying? Be quiet. And yet he won't. I can appreciate that this man continued to seek the Lord, whatever that meant. But I also think we could learn a little bit here about Jesus Maybe I don't want to be the kind of person that would want to throw the water on somebody else's fire who is truly seeking him just because I don't like the way they're speaking. And so in verse 40, Jesus stood and commanded him to be brought unto him, and when he was come near, he asked him, saying, What would thou that I shall do unto thee? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive thy sight. Thy faith has saved thee. You know, it reminds me a little bit of the man who's paralyzed. And the friends have to get their friend to Jesus. And they take him up on the roof because the house is full. And they're breaking up the roof to get the guy down into the, into the house. Normally, would there be a part of us that would want to say, Hey, guys. That's my roof. Hey, guys, that's somebody else's roof. Hey, guys, don't be doing that. Can't you see? We're in here. We're busy here. That's inappropriate to be tearing a roof down in order to let the guy down in the roof. It kind of is. But yet you've got to appreciate the man's effort, that the man is 
needing help, and the people who are helping him, they're doing whatever they can to help the person get what they need. I think that's part of the thing about this blind man. I've never been blind. I don't know what that feels like. But try to imagine, if we, best we can. What would that be like that you can't see? How much would you miss out on? What could you do if you had that ability? And yet, you know your need. The question in this is, do we see our need? Are we like the, the, the rich young ruler who, what do I got to do? It sounds on the surface like, yeah, I want to go to heaven. Or like this man, the blind man who knows he knows. He's desperate. He knows he needs the Lord. Which one of those am I like? Am I like the one we talked about in a previous lesson that prayed and was glad he wasn't like the tax collector? And he's full of himself. Or am I like the tax collector who knows my need and that I need mercy? And am I like the blind man who knows I'm blind? There are some people who don't know they're blind spiritually. Some even ask the question, are we blind also? They thought they could see. They didn't know what they didn't know. But this man knows. He knows he needs God. Do I? Do I know that I am desperate? And would I seek him regardless of others hindering me? Am I going to let anyone or anything get in my way of my opportunity to be right with God? And then am I willing to do whatever I've got to do to please the Lord? In verse 43, And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise unto God. If you've been spiritually blind, why not seek the, the light of the Scripture to know that Jesus is the Christ? Why not be willing to repent? Be willing to confess. I believe that Jesus is the Christ. Be willing to come to Him, giving up self, your desires, the activities that you know are not right before God. Are you willing to do whatever you got to do? Are you going to do some of it? Or are you ready to be all in? Because the Lord's not looking for half-hearted followers. He's not looking for those who are going to do part of it, do a few good things right and then quit. He's looking for those who are going to be faithful to death. And then look what you receive. And I believe we will be like the people that here who gave praise to God and glorified God for His salvation that was available, that a soul is saved. Why not let us baptize you into Christ? if you haven't done that. And let us put you down in the water. By, by doing that, you're in contact with the death of Christ. The blood of Christ cleanses you. When you come up out of the water, you're cleansed. 
And you're healed just like this blind man, but, but in a better way than just physical blindness. We're talking about spiritual healing. Why not do that? And if you're a Christian, why not stay faithful? And if you need anything, you can come to the front while we stand and as we sing.